of uh, hard questions. And so today I thought I would answer the last of the hard questions that Jake uh, asked, but in the process transition back into Galatians, because I think it does take us uh, into Galatians. Um, and Jake's question was about uh, the Elaskomai, or how to translate Elaskomai in uh, what do you, whether you uh, translate it expiation. And of course, the English words we're, we're talking about two English words that almost are both now uh, fallen out of use, mm-hmm. but. Uh, Expiation originally had the idea of a real taking away of sin, and then propitiation, a, a payment uh, in uh, some way. And I'll talk about the meaning here in a little bit. But the to answer the question, you almost have to put the term elaskomai in a family of terms in which we're going to translate each of these or understand them differently than they have sometimes been understood in a Protestant uh, Christianity. And so what I would say is that once one of these terms is translated one way or the other, they all fall into place in these two, I guess we'll just call it two kinds of Christianity. Um, and so, beginning with the term justification, uh, is justification an imputed, you know, the, the word here, dikaisune, is either justification or righteousness. Is it a, an imputed righteousness, as Luther would have it? And by imputed righteousness, he meant uh, the idea that it's given to you legally uh, and almost in a kind of, uh, it's for God primarily, uh, but not a real world being made right. And so the same thing is going to happen with expiation. When we talk about hilaskomai, is it a real world removal of sin, or is it in fact a kind of theoretical or legal, uh, you know, in the mind of God, sort of understanding. And so uh, the the justification, once it's understood that it just means being made right, and also with justification is the idea of a corporate being made right. In other words, uh, that uh, part of the understanding that you get with all these terms that I'm going to use is that they're originally going back to the a, a the covenant that was made with Abraham, and so it had to do with a familial family kind of covenant, and a and by familial then corporate, so that if justification, you know, in that understanding is you're made right in the sense of you're brought into the family. And so justification for a Jew, you know, was being part of an ethnic Jewish identity. But of course we understand, yes, but that uh, is ultimately fulfilled in Christ in which it's not ethnic Jewishness that saves us, but it's being a part of the family of, uh, you know, of Christ, of the church. And then the the next term that this is going to impact is perhaps the most basic Christian terminology, and we're going to run into that in the passage that we'll read tonight from Galatians. And that's the word faith. You know, you'd think, oh, I thought we had that one down. Um, But what has happened is that we've uh, understood faith as primarily faith in Christ. And what people have often missed is in many of these passages, what is being addressed is not faith in Christ, but in fact the faith of Christ. And that, in uh, especially the passages that we'll read in Galatians, but also in Romans, there's about seven passages. The, the right understanding is not, I think, that we are to have an, uh, a faith in Christ, 
But what is being described is Christ's faithfulness. That is that Christ is the faithful one. He's the one who has fulfilled the covenant uh, relationship of faithfulness with Abraham. This is going to make a huge difference in the way we view Christ. You know, is the cross of Christ a kind of objectified thing that we have faith in? That's the understanding in which, you know, Christ died so that I don't have to sort of Christianity. Or is, in fact, the cross a picture of the model that we, too, then, are to take up our cross and follow Christ so that his faithfulness is one that we participate in. And that's a key word here, because we're really describing a Christianity, uh, one kind of Christianity in which it's, oh, Jesus you know, did that so we don't have to, and another kind of Christianity that, no, we are co-participants in it. And so our participation in Christ's faithfulness is the, the faith that we inherit. And that's, that's a huge difference that then will also come out in the way that we look at the law. And so I've, you've probably heard the term covenantal gnomism, the idea that the law was a marker of the covenant with Abraham, that the law was never an end in itself. So in Luther, you have a kind of works you know, understanding of the law. But that was never the Jewish understanding, that you're saved by works righteousness. The way the Jews understood the law is that it was the marker of the covenant with uh, with Abraham, and that one who was found true to the law was found true to the covenant. And so the way, the sense in which the law is fulfilled in Christ is he's the one who has truly been faithful to the covenant. That creates a completely different relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between law and grace. So the way that we often have these pictured for us in uh, Protestant churches uh, is that you know the we we don't do the Old Testament, we just do the New Testament. We don't believe in law, we believe in as if those two things stand against one another. Um, so rather than law versus grace, know that in fact the entire Mosaic covenant, like the Abrahamic covenant, was was already founded in grace. And this is going to be a, make a difference with Jake's question when we come to answer the question of propitiation. Because what we often get with propitiation is this law-based understanding uh, that, you know, why Christ died was to fulfill the law. And the law, as it's being pictured there, is particularly a Lutheran Calvinistic understanding. That is the law over and against grace, the law standing over and against uh, the the work of Christ. Uh, what I, if I don't think I'll get there tonight, but where I would eventually trace this is to Anselm of Canterbury. Uh, but Anselm, you can't blame him entirely because uh, he, he's, he does allow for expiation a little bit in that the way that he's going to talk about the work of the cross is that it in some way enables us to carry out in our will right thinking. But it's already there in Anselm that it is a kind of individualistic uh, thing that happens and it happens within the will. By the time you get to Calvin, any notion of expiation is gone. There, there, it is all pure propitiation, I think. Once you have understood justification and and expiation and covenantal gnomism in the way that I'm describing it, there is then a a reappreciation for a, a, a concept that is nearly completely lost in much of contemporary Protestant and and Catholic Christianity, actually, and that is the healing ministry of Christ. You know, what were the healing what were the miracles of Jesus pointing to? The, the word there is the Greek word therapuo, that he's 
you know, and therapy, you always say that, and we all kind of, ooh, you mean like pop psychology? or No, I mean real-world healing that is certainly inclusive of our psychological well-being. That is, I think that Christianity really addresses us in our minds, but not in the sense of a pop psychology or individualistic understanding. That is, how do you get at a deep understanding of somebody's... Um, you know, neuroses and problems. I don't think that it's actually through understanding simply in isolation from other people, but it's understanding them corporately. That is, what's wrong with us inside our heads is not separate from what's wrong with us socially in terms of family, in terms of society. Uh, so, again, that has almost been left out. And, st- and then you get this strange thing happening in a kind of health and wealth gospel that they, you know, they've kind of, uh, they, they've perverted that aspect of it. And, of course, that's not at all uh, what, what is pictured in the New Testament. Uh, that there is then not a focus on the individual. I would say in the one kind of Christianity... Uh, Jesus saves you, and what you mean by that is you individually, your soul's going to heaven when you die. You know, you're not going to hell. Uh, and that's pretty much the extent of the good news. And so uh, I think that the New Testament understanding is certainly not exclusive of the individual, but the individual is understood in a corporate body. That is, that being saved is a thing that we are carrying out in and through right wising or righteousness right right relationships with other people uh, that we can have a family like relationship that culminates then in a radical kind of Christianity that is usually associated then with you know the Anabaptists or those peace churches that believe in the strange way that we shouldn't kill people. Isn't that odd? How did they ever get there? Um, well, I think that's the, the, the uh, part of the way that you get there is that it's uh, not saying that the peace churches have gotten all this worked out in the way that I'm describing, but once you understand that salvation is this corporate identity, then you understand, oh, we can carry out the Sermon on the Mount, not so much in an individualistic sense, but if we're committed to doing this thing together, uh, that we can in fact uh, create, or not create, but we can participate in uh, the peaceable kingdom that Christ has made for us. And that then is very much connected, and I, I would say it's almost the same subject as the peace that you experience in yourself. I don't think that you can participate or imagine that you need to participate in the violent kingdoms of this world and experience the peace that passes all understanding that is given to us in Christ. But I think that corporately, when we, we begin to put on that peace, that guess what? You can actually begin to experience a different psychological, different emotional life in which the struggle that Paul describes in chapter 7, that agonistic inner conflict, is no longer characteristic of, of who you are. So, uh, that as long as this, uh, you know, this alternative is not taken I'm afraid the other alternative is to imagine that God accomplishes his purposes through violence, through the principalities and powers of this world, through nation states, and, you know, uh, you know, we just need to elect dot, dot, dot for president, or, you know, uh, that, uh, yeah, God forbid that that's going to save us. Um, so what saves us then is not the city of man, but the city of God, right? So that's, I'm setting the scene here for understanding uh, propitiation and expiation. Um, So propitiation in this scheme of things 
would go with a kind of imputed righteousness. Expiation goes with the image and metaphors in which I think are more true to the New Testament, in which sin is actually taken away. Uh, You know, think of the picture of being brought back into right relationship, putting on Christ, being adopted, uh, you know, Christus Victor, that Satan is defeated. Uh, And that there is this covenantal faithfulness that we are in fact enabled in and through Christ's faithfulness to carry out. So maybe a key question we should ask ourselves Is God's righteousness good news or bad news? I'm afraid that for many Christians, this is really bad news. Oh, he's righteous. That means he's really pissed off. And he needs to kill somebody. You know, lucky thing Jesus stepped in there. You know, help him get over his anger problem. Uh, I think that that's just a total misconstrual of the, the biblical picture of righteousness. Righteousness is good news. In the Old Testament, they're crying out to God for his righteousness. You know, God, things ain't right. The, we're surrounded, you know, in the book of Habakkuk. We're treated like so much meat on hooks. And so Paul quotes that passage from Habakkuk. At the beginning of Romans, it says the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven now in Christ Jesus. That's not bad news, that's good news. Because he's making things right. Not that he has a law, that he's, you know, a standard, that uh, he's going to, you know, uh, uh, in some way punish everybody according to. So he is the righteous one and he makes things right. This, I think, fits also then with the primary picture, one of the primary images in the New Testament of the defeat of evil or the defeat of Satan, what is often called Christus Victor. You know, Irenaeus, one of the early Christians, um, says that we're deceived and we're disciples of Satan and Christ has delivered us. So the the problem of expiation, propitiation, first of all, we should recognize it's a problem in the English language, and it's a problem that will arise much later in Christianity, I think, with the advent, ultimately, of Calvinism. I think it's already beginning, uh, you know, it's there in Anselm, but not in a full-blown sense. I have a quote here. This is from Alan Richardson, and this is an old book. And not, I don't think he's prejudiced. He's not, he in no way has participated in, you know, the theological shifts that have occurred in the last 40 years. His book predates that. But I just wanted to, to read this understanding to let you know this isn't, a, this isn't some sort of strange thing coming out of, you know, recent theology. Biblical terminology used to explain the death of Christ, Hilaskomai. The word propitiation occurs four times, and then he lists it. It is true that to say that propitiation in the usual meaning of the word is hardly a biblical idea at all. We are here made aware of one of the main differences between biblical and pagan religion. The idea of placating an irascible deity is almost totally absent from the Bible although it forms a large part of pagan religion and cultus. The reason for this is not because the Bible does not consistently maintain a strong doctrine of the wrath of God, but because of the biblical conception of the covenant mercy of God and his consequent loving kindness toward his people. So in a pagan understanding, and I'm unfortunately I'm afraid by pagan don't get the idea that you have to be a pagan to have pagan thinking. I think pagan thought is just sort of what we drift into outside of uh, a right understanding of who Christ is. But in this uh, pagan religion, uh, Hilaskamai would represent man's propitiation of an angry God. And of course, in uh, a biblical notion, this is impossible. Several, just little, these are kind of footnote items here. When does Jesus die? 
Does he die on the Day of Atonement or does he die at Passover? He dies at Passover, right? And Passover then is the day in which the lamb, not a goat for the word hilasterion does appear in the Old Testament in connection to the atonement. Uh, And it's used then there for that atonement when you have the two goats, the one is sent out into the wilderness and the one is sacrificed. But by the way, the one sent out into the wilderness is the one that bears sin, not the one that dies. So even if we were going to use an Old Testament understanding of propitiation, it doesn't fit with the Passover image in which Jesus is pictured as the Lamb. So uh, propitiation cannot encompass what happens in Christ. Um, this, the scapegoat, we could, you know, we could, this is Rene Girard's picture here. Frank actually did a wonderful paper on this, on the scapegoat and how that fits. Um, but in today's terms, uh, this is uh, James McClendon. He asked the question, are the New Testament Lascomai and some of the passages saying that Christ propitiates God or are they saying that in Christ God expiates sin? The question is, who, what's the problem? God's anger or man's sin? And that's the, you know, that's the importance of the two terms, not necessarily that we know the English terms. And of course, the focus of the New Testament is not God's anger, but the reason for the anger, and that is sin, and, and, and the consequence then is, is death. And so McClendon says that is debated, but the majority opinion is that uh, it is an understanding of expiation. Um, Thus, we can understand better the extent of Christ's suffering. This is Jack Cottrell. Uh, Jack Cottrell is just wonderful in terms of expressing a crude pagan understanding. Um, I don't know who does it better. He bore the equivalent of an eternity of hell for us all. His suffering was much greater than the physical torture of crucifixion. Since God's wrath is spent on Christ, God is now free to forgive sins without violating his own justice. This is the way that propitiation is usually pictured. First of all, why did he, actually the death of Christ is not really the issue here, but it's the suffering of Christ um, that he pictures Christ's need to suffer the eternal pangs of eternal torture's existence on the cross. And it has to be greater even than what is experienced on the cross because it's eternal, it's infinite. So it's much greater than physical torture. So it's spiritual. And of course the problem is that once you spiritualize it and you say it's not really the cross... Why the incarnation? Why the death of Christ Christ at all on the cross? He could have done that eternal suffering in the spirit in heaven. Um, I, I think that uh, that understanding, by the way, is a logical extension. That's what I would say for Cottrell's understanding. It is a logical extension of focusing the death of Christ on saving us from hell. Which again is a popular understanding in evangelicalism that is completely absent in the New Testament. Other than that, it's a great doctrine. Um, there, there is no place in the, in the Bible where the cross of Christ addresses Gehenna or the lake of fire. Um, that's just, you know, uh, what does the cross of Christ address? It addresses sin and death. And that's obvious. What did Christ do? He died on the cross. So propitiate means to appease, and the idea to appease an angry God. Expiate means to remove. 
And so that's the key difference. Is there an actual removal of sin in our lives? Um, uh, the idea of hilasterion uh, is not does not make God's grace gracious, uh, but God's grace is its presupposition. In uh, somebody like Cottrell, he says you have a problem because you have God's love and God's anger, and that's why Christ died, is to reconcile that problem in God. Again, it's a nice, you know, uh, logical understanding, but I don't think our you know, God's schizophrenia is the reason that Jesus had to die on the cross. In fact, I would say that God's love and God's anger go together. What's the opposite of, of love? I think it's indifference. You know, would you rather, you know, I, I often got angry at my children, but not because I didn't love them, but precisely because I didn't, I, I did love them. I don't get angry at the kids next door. Right? <laughs> I'm apathetic. Uh, in fact, I can enjoy the yelling that goes on. No, that's, uh. Well, when they run behind Chris. <laughs> he wouldn't care. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you, you sound like you're from Moberly. Here's James Dunn on the on this topic. Paul's view seems to be that Christ's death was effective in dealing with human sins because he represented the sinners and by his dis- death destroyed their sins. That is brought to an end man as sinner, man under the power of sin. Consequently, for those in Christ Jesus, no further action need be taken by God against their sin, the wrath of God. For being in Christ, they share in his death, and thus can also have firm hope of sharing fully in his resurrection. Uh, This makes sense out of the rest of the New Testament, I think. Um, Whereas traditional Protestant notions, sola fide, you know, Faith alone, what you get is a kind of individualized notion of faith uh, that is focused upon your power of faith. But is it our faith that is primary, or is it in fact the faithfulness of Christ that is primary and that saves, and then our participation in that? Uh, it stands over in a, uh, the notion I've already said of grace you know, being pitted against the law. It's not that the law is our problem and Christ, you know, had to take the law away. It's that sin and death are our problem and the law was simply a marker of that. Um, and then, you know, in a, in a Protestant understanding in, in which faith stands over and against works. Again, that's a, a misconstrual, the, the notion that faith, you don't do anything, that it's in your head. In fact, it's so far in your head that you can't even think it. You know, God gives it to you. Uh, that gets pretty weird eventually because it's just a you know an eternal regression in which you can never, in fact, have a human participation. But the idea is that, no, Christ's faithfulness is one that we participate in, in our own faith. Our faith is taking up his faithfulness. And then once you, you know, the whole idea of justification, is it simply forensic law? You know, no, it's not just forensic. It's not just legal. It's not just theoretical. There's something wrong with us. But it has to do, if you want to put it in terms of the law of sin and death, that is not simply a problem that is captured in either the Mosaic law or in the prohibition in the garden. That's, That's a picture of, alienation from God, alienation from our neighbor. And so justification addresses something much greater in its when you tie it to a covenantal uh, righteousness. So that ties in then to justification. 
This is McClendon again. The earth awaited Yahweh's justice, and Israel, as keeper of the law given at Sinai, proleptically enjoyed that justice already. It consisted not in the rights of modern jurisprudence, but in keeping or restoring right relations, right wising between each other, between each and his or her neighbor, and preeminently right-wising relations between each and God. Thus, Jesus' reading of the law found its ultimate principle embedded in the commandment to love God and with it to love neighbors. Thus, the two great commandments of Jesus, to love God and love your neighbor, are really one commandment having to do with justification or righteousness, that we're made right, we're enabled to actually do that. Um, so justification has been distorted and I think propitiation uh, is a a part of that distortion I think an objectified faith is part of that distortion and all of that then comes to fruition in Martin Luther's point that well we just need to get rid of the book of James it's an epistle of straw once you make that move, there are portions of the New Testament that are going to make no sense whatsoever to you. So, for James, though, rooted in Jewish wisdom lore, justification, faith, and right relations with God and neighbor are an inseparable monad. This is McClendon. The lack of any one of them is the lack of all. So, what is faith? What is right? You know, well, it's it has to do with things that you do. It has to do with the way that you treat widows and orphans, and uh, you know, think of the judgment scenes in the New Testament. They're always connected with things that people have either done or not done. Uh, the next dis- distortion was encountered, you know, uh, even by Paul. He met an objection to his doctrine, and you know, he says this several times. Why not persist in sin so that there may be all the more grace? Uh, That perversely disregarded the radical inbreaking of the new in Christ and its historic and social aspects uh, and corrected it. So even in the New Testament, I think they're already combating in Gnostic understandings, in Jewish legalistic Christianity, a kind of turn to legalism, to private, a kind of private understanding of salvation, you know, in very early in the second century, who is it, Valentinian, those of you who have studied Gnosticism, is going to be talking about a secret knowledge, and uh, that what they're missing, and that Paul is already combating, is no, this has to do with the kingdom of people in which we we are carrying this out corporately. Uh, others have once more divided the indivisible, either, this is McClendon, by extrapolating the aspect of justification as court acquittal into a fictitious righteousness enjoyed by sinners unchanged still, or by focusing upon the inner dynamic of justification to the neglect of its communal and social dimensions or by exalting God's victory in Christ while leaving unaddressed its demand for I-thou confrontation between each sinner and God the judge. What he's saying here is that justification, righteousness, it has to do with real-world relationships. So, I'll stop there, but let us just pause it as at least a thinkable alternate hypothesis that for Paul, righteousness, justification, uh, you know, expiation, either uh, whether we're talking about in terms of God or human beings, uh, is conceived not simply as something that happens to an isolated individual, but is, in fact, as Paul will describe it, that the creation itself is groaning in travail awaiting the revealing of the sons of God, that these are cosmic purposes that are being worked out in the church, 
and that the kingdom of God then is ultimately going to embrace the cosmos itself. This doesn't negate the personal in any way. It just sets the personal, I think, in its proper context in that we are right, you know, righteous, we're right kind of people only in a corporate relationship. And by corporate relationship, I'm sorry, I'm just clarifying. Do you mean a corporate relationship with others and with creation? So like the whole garden thing and taking care, you know, using the napkins instead of paper towels. And... Yes, peace with the land is, you know, the, the part of the violence that is introduced in Eden, uh, part of the uh, alienation is an alienation not just between God and people and between people, but it's actually between people and the earth. And so that there, where we were given a kind of, you know, we've called it the dominion mandate, maybe that's the wrong word, maybe it was the responsibility mandate, that we are responsible for creation. It's not given us to, you know, so we can use it up. It's given us you know, like the garden, that we might tend it, that we might care for it. And there is a, when we talk about the healing of Christ, I think the deep therapy that we're describing extends then to our relationship to plants and animals and to just the, the world around us. And that kind of goes into what you're saying about um, the opposite of love is indifference or apathy, you know? mm-hmm. so. We should care about, you know, about these things that sometimes we just don't. But at the same time, it's not like a primary thing, but it's just included in, you know, reconciliation. And there's a deep joy here that's available to us, and I think we just miss out on in simple, everyday things that, you know, and I think as you know, uh, being in communion with nature, whether it's through a garden or through some other means, that uh, God's love is manifest all around us. And I think that part of the our responsibility for creation then is that we are kind of co-participants with God in uh, uh, you know the pic- the original picture of Adam naming, the animals is he's almost like a co-creator with God, uh, that he's doing the work of a research scientist sorting out, and I, I think that that's uh, that as we return to creation care, I think the deep love and joy that is available to us through creation, uh, just in everyday things, in ordinary things, that life is a beautiful thing, that we so easily pass over and miss in our imagining that oh yeah i can't wait to die and go to heaven or something no what if what if in fact we realize or recognize maybe moberly missouri will just be outside the east gate of the new jerusalem i don't know maybe it'll be inside the (laughs) Um, when i did my mother's funeral this past year she is from kansas and can I talk about my mother without talking about Kansas? No, she that's who she is. You know. And so if you took Kansas out of my mother, in some way I don't know that she's going to heaven. That is Kansas has to be there. For me it's Texas. Oh my gosh. I know. I know this is terrible, but but the worst part of Texas the part that nobody wants anything to do with uh, is the place that I found God. Uh, you know, in the Texas prayer, it's so hot and barren and human. How could God be there? But he is, you know. And so I think that, that once we begin to have those sorts of eyes and recognize that the new Jerusalem is going to encompass these places, then our being grafted into a locality, a place, is not a limiting factor about us, but in fact is a way in which, you know, this is the, the, you know, the scandal of the particular. 
is always what people talk about with Christ. What do you mean? This Jew, 2,000 years ago, died, and that's cosmic of importance? I think once we take that scandal up and we realize, yes, that God deals in the particular, we also begin to recognize he's working in and through the particulars of a particular place, a particular group of people, a particular surrounding, and we all of a sudden we realize God's grace is channeled to us precisely through these people, through this place, through this time. What could be more joyous a realization than that? Realizing that there's hope for a place. There's, There's a hope for every place and every people. All right, let's let's uh, look at Galatians uh, two eleven to twenty one. You want to start with verse eleven, Dom? Well, I'll read a sentence, and then everybody will jump on you when you finish and explain it. Okay. Uh, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So this is Paul's running down. This is kind of a mundane thing here. What is it that Peter won't do? He won't eat lunch with their bios. You say, well, what would that matter? Well, for Paul, that makes all the difference in the world. If you've just understood the description that I've, I've made, that participation in the body of Christ is our salvation, and that participation is universal, to not eat lunch or dinner, I don't know what meal of the day it was, with everybody is to say that in some way there is still a division and Judaism is still, you know, uh, the ethnic, being an ethnic Jew is still a necessary marker in salvation. Paul is going to, so he literally confronts Peter. So go on, Maisie. Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So, uh, we don't know. We can presume that in some way this is already an early kind of misconstrual because we know that the Jerusalem Council is not going to demand this sort of ethnic division. But in some way, this group comes and uh, Peter is himself influenced to put up what Paul will call the dividing wall of hostility. For Paul, this is the marker that salvation has come. The dividing wall in the temple, the dividing wall of hostility between God and man, but between Jew and Gentile, is broken down. And so he'll, as he later says, there is no longer that sort of division. And then, verse 13. And with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So keep reading. Yeah, go ahead. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like a Jew? How are you saved? Paul is asking. Are you saved by keeping the food laws? And so, again, is it a question of, you know, some sort of works righteousness? That's not so much what's at stake here, but it's an ethnic identity. What are the two markers of ethnic identity for a Jew? Or three, I don't know if there's just two. Circumcision. Circumcision is key. Sabbath and food law? Yeah, and the Sabbath and the food law. So, you know, think of Peter in Acts chapter 10, when the sheet is let down from heaven. Peter, arise and eat and I think it's the only place in the Bible that somebody says, No, God. (laughs) And he says it three times. Because he knows 
He can't do that because that's not in accord with the Jewish law. But the point is, well, that was for a time. That was temporary. And Paul's argument in Romans and Galatians is that the true Jew is not the ethnic Jew. That is the one who keeps the food laws and circumcised. But the true Jew is the one who has the faith of Abraham. Uh, That's the true uh, marker. Now, it is not as Luther pictured it. Oh, we're getting rid of all that old stuff. And now we're doing something, you know, we had law, now we have grace. No, the law was, the Mosaic law was a temporary measure that was a marker of the Abrahamic covenant that is fulfilled in Christ. So we still, and, and the reason that's important is because something as simple, you know, as eating with other people is the key to understanding the kingdom of God because just as Jew was a socio-political entity, so too is Christianity. It is a socio-political, cultural, everything that Judaism was, it is a people, it's a kingdom. And so you can't have divisions in the kingdom of God. Beth, you want to read the next one? Sure. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. So the question here that we've discussed is, what faith saves us? And here the, you know, is it the faith of Christ or is it faith in Christ? And... Richard Hayes and others would say, well, actually what Paul is saying, that the faith of Christ is what's key, that Christ has been true uh, to the covenant. Okay, I have a question. So, is this idea of like, so Paul is saying like law is not how we get justified. So, I'm thinking of the new perspective, the like new, Mm -hmm. the anti-right thing. Mm -hmm of the paradigm of the new perspective. So is this kind of, like, in that worldview paradigm, is, would this be saying, like, they never thought of it as legalism? Yes, that's right. Yeah, Richard Hayes and uh, N.T. Wright, uh, Richard Hayes wrote his doctoral dissertation and, and uh, on the idea of, uh, you know, Christus Pistu, or the faith of or faith in. And in, so Wright always credits Hayes with, in fact, being leading light in new perspective. But yes, the idea is that no Jew ever thought that he was saved by his ability to do good works. That's not part of Judaism. They thought they were saved because of they are have entered into a covenant relationship that is marked, you know, first of all, it's a relationship with Abraham, but is marked in by the law, so that it's not a matter of works righteousness, but it's a matter of being in the family of God. And Jews then pictured themselves as being, through their ethnic marks of, you know, food laws, and, uh, you know, even in uh, the Judaism, there's an allowance for sin, right? sacrifice for sin. So it's not that they ever had the notion that that they had in some way, yeah. Paul will say, I kept the law perfectly. I was, you know, he he will brag about it, and he says, and yet I was the chief of sinners. So the law, uh, the function of the law then was to mark out, as Paul will say, a kind of uh, it is a kind of tutor or slave that would bring the children to school. The law then carries us from the covenant of Abraham uh, to its fulfillment in Christ. The law was never meant to be a permanent measure, and to, in some way, make the law definitive of God's work in Christ. As I'm afraid a you know a Lutheran or Calvinistic understanding has done, 
is to give the law a greater importance than it ever had in the Old Testament and to miss then what the message of the New Testament is. That No, it's not that you know Christ fulfilled the law in that sense. He fulfilled the law and that the purposes of the law are met in Christ. Christ embodied the law is another way of putting it. He's bigger than the law. Uh, the law was a temporary measure. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. It's no longer Paul that lives, uh, but it's Christ Jesus who lives within me. I take Paul to be describing in a very literal sense what something has passed on. He describes this, he's going to do it later in Galatians, but he does it in great detail in Romans. That is this I, and this I that is he's going to describe in terms of uh, being antagonistic you know, split. There's the law of my mind, there's the law of the flesh. I do what I don't want to do, and what I want to do, I don't do. Uh, You know, that it's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Or it's like, you know, that things are out of control, like Frankenstein's monster. That you got problems, man. But don't imagine that the New Testament doesn't address your psychological problems. Yes, it does. In fact, that was part of the whole point of the law and the way that the law functioned. Uh, you know, this is sort of what Freud discovers, that people's neuroses are, are like a, uh, they're kind of boring and they're mechanical. You know, we all think that there were, there are little private things that, and surely nobody else is sick as sick as I am. And then we discover, oh yeah, everybody's sick. But guess what? We're all sick in exactly the same way. And that's what Paul's describing. And that's that's why he's saying that is that that has undergone death. I have been crucified with Christ. Did that hurt Paul? Mm-hmm. Did that damage his identity? Did that in some way take away from his subjectivity as a human being to be crucified with Christ? In one way, but not. <laughs> yeah, maybe if, uh, if uh, we understand, uh, and I think in a sense, yeah, maybe that does, you know, uh, uh, maybe it's hard to give up on our neuroses. Maybe it's hard to give up on our masochism. Maybe it's hard to give up on our sadism. Or the, your oppressive attitude or position. It's kind of nice. Yeah. Uh, and so I think all of that is included in the eye. The, this is, I, I'm not over-psychoanalyzing this because it's there in the Greek. What is the word I in Greek, Trent? It's just the word ego. Um, you know, not, not that, that, that everything that we impute into the word today, but that's the origins, that's the etymology of the word. And so it's not that our ego needs saving or that this dynamic needs uh, uh, redemption. In fact, it needs killing. That's strange, right? And so that's what Paul is picturing, that Peter is in danger of going back to, that he's going to create this whole antagonistic relationship that the way that that is undone is through this new society and this new subject that has been created in Christ in which the I, uh, I I think this, I may, you know, this may sound odd in fact in English because we are so attached to the word ego but just think of it here in terms of a dynamic, uh, you know, a kind of agonistic dynamic between the I and the law. That struggle is undone. 
You don't have to deal with that struggle. So I think that many Christians and a lot of Christian preaching is aimed at invigorating us in our enthusiasm for the struggle. You need to try harder. You need to struggle harder. No, I think, in fact, just the opposite. That the eye has been undone. So that the thing that we receive is a gift. That's the sense of grace. That's the sense in which we are gifted with this thing and we just enter into it and we enjoy it. We don't have to. Now, don't, don't imagine I'm saying, oh, there's no willpower here. But the will then is not any further engagement in a struggle with sin. That is, I think, in fact, to aggravate the problem. That in some way the whole dynamic is undone. And then verse, where did we get? 20? Mm-hmm. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that Christ lives in me. Uh, that uh, I don't think that, that uh, you know, uh, we, we need to completely mystify this, that how does Christ live in us? How does the Holy Spirit indwell us? Well, uh, where is the body of Christ? Not a mystery. That this is the body of Christ. And the way that Christ lives within me is that as I indwell Christ, Christ, you know, indwells me. Is that I, where two or three are gathered, Christ is there. Um, Richard Hayes does a thing that's, I think, heretical. But it's it's a, a heresy that I would almost prefer to the kind of fundamentalist misunderstanding that you get in uh, pictures of the Holy Spirit. His idea, he says, well, actually in the New Testament, whenever it talks about the Holy Spirit, it's always talking about the corporate identity. The indwelling of the Spirit is the indwelling of a plurality of persons. So that love, joy, peace, long-suffering, the fruits of the Spirit are things that we enjoy corporately. I think that's true, but I don't think you need to state it quite that way. I think that what we enjoy corporately, we also enjoy individually. But I think that that emphasis needs to be put there because what we often picture of the gift of the Holy Spirit is in some way a communion directly, you know, an ecstatic relationship that I can have directly with God. And I understand this so well because... I think that, you know, that was my own pursuit. So, unfortunately, part of my pursuit of God in the Texas Prairie was not free of heresy. That's also a big part of Texas. I was guilty of, yes, I'll just ride my pony out here, me and the dogs and brother, you know, son, sister moon. Uh, I don't need anybody. I'm just a lone cowboy. (laughs) 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 But that that does not the body of Christ make. Alright, and then the last verse, Chris, you have the key place. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly if things are made right through the law Christ died needlessly if things are made right through a book Christ died needlessly if things are made right you know through a doctrine if things are made we could just go on and on things then are made right for us because Christ has defeated the problem of sin in our orientation to sin and the death of Christ then is what saves us. The gospel is not something that's contained in a book. The gospel is not something that's even, dare I say, contained in preaching. The gospel is contained in Christ. And we believe that Christ 
is is there, right? Christ is the one, you know, the deposit of faith. Christ is the one that, uh, you know, the word of God is written to protect, I mean, I mean scripture. So, the deposit of faith, the, the agape love, the corporate identity of the church is the necessary thing. Uh, the love of God is the essential thing uh, in, in our faith. Without that, the rest is me.